Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, May 28th, and we're talking about a frequent podcast sponsor, Gone Public. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by longtime fool and 2015's father of the year, Anand Chakavalu. Anand, how you doing? I'm doing great, Dylan. Very happy <laughs> to be here. You know, regular listeners of the show might be a little surprised to not have an alliterative tongue twister in there, but I like the 2015 father of the year. That's that's fun. Is that self-appointed, or do you have a mug to support that? Well, I mean, I think I think the voting was was rigorous. Uh, <laughs> people keep asking, it's like those restaurants, 2008, you know, best restaurant in D.C. You're like, wait, what happened since 2008? <laughs> yeah. Are you you're saying you're resting on your laurels? Is that- <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I've gotten top five places a couple of years, but haven't climbed that mountain again. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to have you on. Um, for for fools that may not know, you you were like basically my first boss at the Fool, um, and we spent a long time together in editorial, um, both understanding the content world of, of talking about stocks, but also yeah, I mean I've learned so much from you in how to look at businesses, um, and it, it's one of you're one of those people that I've kind of cited often in my own investing approach. So really happy to have you on to do a prospectus show today because uh, we're going to be talking about Square uh, Squarespace and digging into their prospectus. Yeah, and I'm a big time listener, so I'm excited to actually be on one of these S1 shows. I usually listen to it to crib notes from it. <laughs> well, I love that. Uh, I'm happy that I can provide some value to you, hopefully some value to all of our Fool listeners out there as well. Um, and, and I think this is one of those fun ones because Squarespace is a business. I think a lot of people kind of already know who they are and what they do. Um, they have for a long time blanketed the digital media space with ads and and kind of in the same way that a lot of insurance companies you know really want to be in your brain when it comes time to make that decision that's what they've chosen to do with their own marketing approach um, for folks that don't know they are really focused on making it dumb simple for people to build a brand and transact online uh, in a beautiful and simple way their their mission statement we enable millions to build a brand and transact with their customers in an impactful and beautiful online presence the vision gets at something very similar on and but the idea here and we've seen a lot of success with these types of businesses is let's take something that's complicated it involves a lot of technical knowledge and make it very easy for the end user absolutely uh they they provide that all in one spot for for creators to build that website and also do e-commerce behind it and you know, there are a lot of competitors there, but they really make it simple, along with a couple other folks. Yeah. And, and for people that maybe have heard things that sound similar to this, uh, but maybe not Squarespace in particular, Wix is a big competitor. And depending on the individual functionality that you're looking at with their website, uh, you know, we're going to be pulling in Shopify. We're going to be pulling in big commerce for this conversation as well, because there's a very large commerce component to what they do. Uh, at core, I think most people know them for helping them create a digital presence. And so what does that look like? It's it's websites, it's domain creation, it's uh, social media assistance, creating professional email tools, um, and some enterprise solutions. The commerce side, I think, is where this business starts to get interesting. I, I think they're a little bit more limited in their functionality there than some of the other players I just mentioned. But they are making investments there, and they also have uh, some marketing tools. The idea being, if you're a creator, if you're a small business, you can come here, have a relatively easy drag-and-drop solution to building a website and getting some of those initial commerce and transactional-oriented tools into the mix. 
Right on. Uh, and, you know, you look at Shopify and you look at its pricing and it's like, you know, we talk about that e-commerce upside. It's like, I think the top end is like 10 times more for a monthly subscription than Squarespace. So that'll definitely be a challenge that we'll talk about. It is. And, and, and I think it's unavoidable when you talk about Squarespace to also talk about Shopify because the founding story is going to sound incredibly familiar to a lot of people. Uh, I'm just going to pull this quote straight from the founder's letter in the S1. When I tried to build a website for myself, I was immensely frustrated by the lack of polish and integration work required to build even something simple using technologies available at the time. Squarespace was born out of that frustration. Uh, and that's straight from the founder and CEO, Anthony Casalina. I think we've seen a lot of success on and with executives, uh, specifically founders, identifying a problem, solving it themselves with a product, and then bringing that to market. Yeah, and re- I remember his, his, his letter in the S1, he's talking about it. It just sounds kind of generic. And then you think about, well, this was like 2003, 2004, when he was kind of founding the company. And especially back then, it's this was really pretty pioneering. It was, yeah. And and I think we have to take that step back and remember where the internet was in 2004. Uh, this is uh, a business that has kind of the, the classic Valley founding story in that, you know, it was built in his college dorm room, not far from us uh, at Fool HQ with uh, University of Maryland. Um, and, you know, it was a bootstrap business for a long time. They, they launched in 2004, hired first employee in 2006. And I know, you know, tracing my own internet history back a little bit, around that era, I was like, I was a WordPress personal blog kind of guy. I mean, like the, the functionality and really what was out there for building your own stuff from scratch, if you weren't someone who had technical skills, it was pretty limited. I mean, this is before the whole Dylan Enterprise took off and you needed those (laughs) e-commerce solutions. That's right. Before you were into SEO and all that stuff. You should see the gross merchandise volume and total payment volume coming through now, Anand. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) um, and and I think with this business, they they very smartly saw where the market was going and, and what people needed because, you know, the, the early aughts, I think, Everyone was like, I need to be online. I don't really know what I need to be doing online, but I need to be there. And and it was more of a point of contact type thing. And as we've seen these tools get more and more sophisticated, what we see is in Squarespace's case, the introduction of commerce functionality. Um, and that's key because I think it's going to be a really big part of uh, what drives their growth going forward. It's also important because I think we've seen a lot of success- successful businesses tap into that part of this market in particular. Yeah, I mean, you only need to look at the uh, the valuation of Shopify to to see the uh, the potential there, right? Yeah, it's it's massive, and and I think the more that you can bring into the fold, we talk about it all the time with software software as a service providers, but really any platform provider. The hard part is getting people in the mix. Once you start layering things on top of that, that's where you expand your relationship. You hopefully see the value of those customers increasing over time and the value that you're providing to those customers also increasing over time. Yeah, I got to think it's pretty sticky. Once you once you put a website or a blog or a, or your your company's stuff on on a on a platform, yeah, of course you're going to say, "Yes, please provide me with that SEO help. Provide me with a with a with a shop or e-commerce solution. Provide me with anything that just puts it online and and does it for me. Yeah, especially I think in the lower end of the market where you have small businesses that are often very leanly run, it could be a sole proprietorship uh, or a very small team. I mean, you think about the upfront investment of learning how to use uh, a web platform to create your digital presence. Do you you really want to 
if that's not your expertise, have to switch doing that every couple of years? Probably not, right? Like if you find something that's really adequately fitting what you need to do as they roll in more things, you're just going to continue to be a customer of that platform. We've all been to those restaurant sites where you're kind of surprised they even have a website and you realize they haven't updated it in seven years. Yeah, <laughs> it looks Manicotti like... <laughs> hasn't been there. <laughs> it looks like the old school Space Jam website for, for anyone that uh, followed that story online. Recently updated, unfortunately, uh, but a nice relic of the old internet. Um, and, and, and no surprise here when you start to look at how a company like, like this makes money, almost entirely subscription revenue. Um, and and I think this is great for a variety of reasons. I mean, uh, we're Brian Feroldi here, you know, frequent contributor to the show. He'd be like... All right, that's a big check. Subscription revenue is something we often look for. In this case, 94% of revenue coming from that. And it makes sense for a business like this because generally you want that symbiotic relationship. You want the customer using something and having uh, it make sense for them only in as much as they're getting value out of it. What we see in Squarespace's case is a monthly subscription and an annual subscription. Um, and, and the pricing is pretty competitive for people coming in and just getting started with their solutions on it. That's right. It's, it's plans start around $12 a month and they go up to $54 a month, depending on the functionality you need. You know, are you just hosting a blog like Dylan did back in the day? Or are you selling stuff online and you need that functionality? And whether you pay monthly or annually. Uh, so you're talking about a few hundred dollars a year, but from millions of customers. Uh, we'll be talking about, you know, about three to four million ending subscribers in 2020. Uh, one thing on that 94%, you know, as we go along that upside, we kind of want that to see that go go lower, right? Because the other stuff is kind of the revenue sharing with payment processors like Stripe, PayPal, and Square are the three that they use. Uh, so that means that people are actually having high uh, GMV on their sites uh, and then revenue from third-party services offered to customers. So that's that's only 6% of their business right now. So that's that's not... Well, that's a big potential opportunity. Let's put it it's that up, way. It's upside for them. I think they're, they're going to have a hard time uh, capturing it because that that part of the market is so competitive. And and one of the things that I loved in in our preparation for the show, Anand, was you did a quick breakdown on where they are with their current revenue, where they are with their current subs, and just doing a back of the envelope on what that gets you to in terms of a customer per year. And it's and it's helpful to gut check some of the numbers that we see from a business. Right. I should have just gone to the ARPU table uh, like you did. <laughs> but luckily, the numbers were pretty close. Uh, so if you take the, you know, around $620 million uh, in sales, divided by that 3.66 million uh, ending subs, you get around $169 uh, per customer per year or $14 a month, which remember the low end of their offering is $12 a month. So that that makes sense. That jives. Obviously, you have customer churn and, and acquisitions throughout the year. So some customers haven't been there the whole year. Some maybe only were there at the beginning of the year and churned off. So, yeah, and it's it's helpful even if you get numbers in the prospectus to do your own math and just make sure that you're thinking about it the same way. Because because even if you're like, yep, I wound up in the same place, at least you understand the inputs for how you're getting to that end number. Um, in their case, yeah, I think I think it's worth highlighting a couple metrics here. You hit it before with 3.6 uh, million unique subscriptions, a very big customer base for them, and that's because for the most part they're focused on the lower end of this market. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, I mean, you look over. One of the things that I've been kind of surprised by with them is, you know, we, we look at these subscription businesses, and we talk about, you know, the value of being a great provider, and that that flowing through in what you see in terms of spend increasing from existing customers. Uh, some of that is 
delighting them, being able to increase uh, the value that you're offering to them. Uh, some of it's being able to exert pricing power and be able to say like, we know we're offering a pretty good solution. We can raise our prices every now and then. You see it with a Netflix, right? The, the, the content library is undeniable. It gives them that opportunity. In their case, ARPU has trended up, but it hasn't trended up too dramatically, especially for a business that is so reliant on subscription revenue. So you go back to 2018, we're seeing it at 178, 2019, 182, uh, and most recently in 2020, $187. Um, I don't have to be honest, that it's a little smaller in terms of growth than I would expect it to be. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it is technically a, a software as a subscription service, right? It's a SaaS company, but we're used to SaaS companies that that go to large enterprises and you do that land and expand and there's all these things you can upsell folks on. But if you're selling a, a basic subscription that, you know, maybe you can get them to a little more functionality as people go to e-commerce and stuff. But if you're running a blog and you have been for five years, what are you going to do? You're just going to pay that 12 bucks a month. Yeah. And I guess that's just the reality of the space that they operate in within this market. You know, there there is some upside and there's expansion opportunity with uh, the individuals just running their websites or very small businesses, but perhaps a little bit less than we're used to when you get into mid-market and up-market solutions. Yeah. They need more people spending other people's money. <laughs> you know, that generally, that's a pretty good business model. If, if, right. if you can figure that out. <laughs> Um, in, in terms of how this all comes together for them as a business, um, and, and I think maybe on and before we even get into the financials, I was, I was about to just start tearing into it. We probably need to add a little caveat here, a little asterisk. Yeah, please, please don't lose this. Uh, this is the hard part of the, uh, the podcast. Uh, so the caveat before we get started is as part of the direct listing, there was a conversion of preferred stock that was pretty confusing to us. Um, here, the pro forma numbers that, that, that they add seem to kick what what were preferred dividends. Uh, now those preferred the preferred stock got converted into common, and now there's an income statement effect. So there's more expenses there. So here's our best shot at parsing what all this means, right? So revenue for 2020 was north of 600 million. It was up 28% year over year. It was 24% the previous year. Um, so decent growth. Uh, and then if we kind of compare, um, you know, the gross margin, well, the gross margins ca came in at 82 percent, which is which is strong, but they spend a lot in other categories. So 50 percent of sales is on G&A expenses, general administrative, 42 percent of sales is on marketing and sales, and then 28 percent is on R&D, research and development. Now, if you're if you're a quick math person, you realize that that adds up to more than a more than eighty two percent and more than a hundred. So that results in an operating loss of thirty thirty eight percent. Right, Dylan? Yeah, and I mean for for a business that is in this type of land grab space, where you know I, I think anyone that is looking at uh, digital footprints, online commerce, moving stuff online. You'd say, yes, the story's been around for a little while, but we're probably in inning three of, of a game that's going to be played out over certainly the next 10 years, probably well beyond that, though. So like with a lot of these businesses, you're willing to accept those losses because the customer acquisition time is now. Uh, but that said, yep operating losses coming at you. And 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 there's a little <laughs> bit of funkiness to this because, you know, if you look at some reports, they seem like a profitable business, but because of the caveat that we had to provide up top with the funkiness in the numbers, it's it doesn't seem that that is an ongoing 
operating profit that they're capable of posting, but more what we are seeing come through with the numbers with how all of this direct listing stuff is settling. Yeah, because before before the direct listing, you'd get a net income to common shareholders, which we're used to looking at, because usually there aren't you know that much of a preferred thing, and you get a nice nice decent little profit. But then you'd have the the dividends to to preferred that would take it negative. But you know you're kind of used to just ignoring any you know you get to net income and you say yes positive awesome, uh, but that's what's going on there. Yeah. And, you know, that's the reality of the situation. Uh, and, and you know, it, there are times where I think it's important for us, even as folks who spend a lot of time looking at things to say, I, I think I have a grasp on this. I admit, I don't totally get it, you know, when it comes to the way that these things factor in. And this will be very interesting, that first earnings release, because then we can bump up what we think is going on to what, what it actually is when they report without these pro forma figures so that it's just, hey, look, this is what happened via Gap. Yeah. And, and one thing that I, I want to dig into a little bit with that that top line is, uh, so for, for 2020, we're seeing about $620 million, um, in, in revenue for them. Um, they break that out into two different forms. We have the presence revenue that comes through, and that's, you just think about it as like the core maintaining online presence for their customers. So people that want to stand up a website um, and are paying a monthly or an annual fee to do that. And interestingly enough, uh, about 70%, I believe, of their customers wind up opting for uh, the annual subscription, which is higher than I thought it'd be. The uptake, uh, I, I assumed because the monthly subscription uh, is uh, a little bit less of a commitment, you'd see more people uh, start out there, but only 30%, uh, which I guess means that there's probably legacy customers that started out monthly, switched over to annual at some point because they saw the value there. Um, but by and large, the money is coming in through what they do with digital presence. The commerce side is faster growing. Um, but it's a much smaller piece of the pie. And so in 2020, 475-ish uh, million coming through uh, for presence, commerce just under 150 million. Um, the presence growth, though, only about 18%, whereas commerce is growing over 75%. That's obviously a really exciting part of this business. Um, it's where things are going to get a lot harder and a lot more competitive for them, though. Right. And if I'm if I'm thinking through it right, I think it's still, uh, since 94% of the revenues are from subscriptions, I think this is just them parsing out those higher tiers that, that add e-commerce. If you look at kind of their functionality, they'll add marketing and, and e-commerce as, as kind of modules that you, you kind of are buying into. So they must be kind of parsing it between presence and commerce that way. So it's not, it's not that you're, you're also adding on additional features, which, which would kind of be the goldmine if they can start doing that. Yeah, and I think one way to look at this massive unmonetized base, quote unquote unmonetized, they're they're paying, you know, monthly or annual subscriptions, but it's for, you know, the, the more basic level thing, is this is this is an opportunity for them to grow with customers um in a way that, you know, it feels natural, it feels organic. You're not, you know, beating them over the head with the upsells, and it's a massive cohort of people that you can bring solutions to. Um you wonder though if if people that are attracted to something like Squarespace may or may not have those same upsell profiles that someone using a Shopify or a big commerce might have. Yes, I do wonder that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a hard question to answer and it's it's the eternal like it when you see a data point like that where it's like so much is coming in through subscription, so much of it's coming in through one specific part of their business, 
you've seen stories where that feeds a ton of other parts and you actually wind up with accelerating growth over time. You also see a lot of instances of unfulfilled growth stories because it, it just didn't come together the way that it did for competitors. And another thing, just kind of thinking through it is say, say you, you have some business and then you, you start with, with Squarespace. And then even though it's hard to, to change platforms, if you get to a certain point and you're not getting the functionality you need, then do you, do you upsell to a, to a Shopify and just say, Hey, we just, we just need to go there now because this is big. Yeah. And, and I can see why people would do that. I mean, if you're looking in the, you know, slightly upmarket e-commerce space, Shopify is the game, right? I mean, I think even big commerce is having a hard time convincing people that for, for as specifically tailored to that audience as they are, they're worth it over Shopify, just because Shopify has emerged as such a major player in that space. So many big companies choose to use Shopify rather than build something homegrown, um, which, which I think is a, you know, a big selling point for them. And you figure at that scale, once you hit that scale, you probably have either employees who know what, how to do this stuff or, or can pay for a consultant versus kind of doing it yourself where that Squarespace or a Wix solution just feels really good because you can just do it. Yeah. And, and you want it. I mean, you just want it. You want to be able to go live with it when you can. Um, Anand, we mentioned um, the, the founding story and, and this really being a, a business that is driven by management. Uh, I pulled that quote before. We love the founder story. We love founders that stick around. Uh, in, in this case with Anthony Casalina, uh, this is his business. I, I, that, by all appearances, <laughs> like he's the guy and he's yes. staying here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's kept control since you know, 2004. Uh, and yeah, betting on Squarespace is betting on him. He owns about 36% of the, the shares outstanding, but do the dual class uh, structure as we, you know, we see a lot, 68% of the total voting control. Uh, so he, he's got it, which, hey, I mean, I, I like that personally. Yeah, I think he's highly motivated. It's it's his business. Um, and he has grown this, you know, it, it's easy to look at something like a Squarespace and say like, oh, man, they came public. They're at this huge valuation. Uh, this is a 16 year overnight success story, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> just just because yeah. we're starting to follow the story now, he has been laying the groundwork for a long time for this business and ran it pretty lean for a long period of time. Um, the folks who have helped him along the way in terms of providing early financing have been handsomely rewarded. The valuation for this business has really swelled over time. And when we look at what we're seeing from employees and just culturally, um, there are a lot of, a lot of positive signs uh, with his leadership as well. Right on. Yeah, those Glassdoor reviews look great. 3.9 out of 5, 78% approve of CEO, 74% recommend to a friend, you know, 172 ratings. So it's decent, decent chunk. I think they're, they have a you know, bit over a thousand employees. So good percentage yeah. of them. Yeah, and, and that becomes really important when you go from being a private company to a public company. Culturally, it's a big shift. Uh, you mentioned, you know, that the first earnings report is going to be something we're obviously going to be paying a lot of attention to. But over time, as as your company gets talked about publicly, and you you know start to have the scrutiny of being a publicly traded business, that can often affect the way that management makes decisions, and also employees tend to feel, uh, particularly when you know their equity is being valued on a daily or hourly basis. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hopefully you're happy because it's going up. But. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, so I think there won't be any surprises here when we talk about the opportunity in front of this business. Um, you know, the 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 stories that we have seen play out in the space have have generally been 
tremendous. I mean, the, the online space, the e-commerce space, it's been exploding over uh, the last 15 years. This is another company that is trying to capitalize on that. In their prospectus, they cite data saying over 800 million small businesses and self-employed uh, ventures worldwide, uh, and they estimate a near to medium term TAM of 150 billion. We're going to discount that a little bit, I think, on <laughs> especially given where they are uh, with their current revenue base. But um, I think it's easy to look at the space that they're in and say, not only is there a lot of room here to run, there's probably a lot of room for a lot of different players. Right. Yeah, I believe the total market, total addressable market for them. <laughs> yeah, probably a bit smaller. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, depending on what you're going after, whether it's new customers or existing customers from competitors, you're going to have varying degrees of success seizing more land in that market. But there's a lot of space there. And I think there are also a lot of businesses that still haven't made that jump, even though 2020 was such a step change year for companies getting digital, getting online if they weren't already. I think there are a lot of businesses that still haven't made that hop. Yeah, they, they cite uh, a firm called Clutch and they say approximately 46% of small and medium-sized businesses are not online today, which, you know, you definitely want to dive into that. It's <laughs> a, you know, like, wait, wait, what are you counting? What's the numerator? What's the denominator? Who, who all are you counting here? But that that that's shocking. Yeah, and I would guess that more of those businesses are on the smaller side. I think, you know, if, if you are a medium and certainly an enterprise business, I mean, you're, you're online at this point or, or you're, you're circling the drain. You know, I don't, I don't know how you've survived, but um, a, a lot of the businesses that are going to be, I think, factored into those types of numbers are smaller operations, limited staff, um, and, and maybe really need something out of the box that just kind of works for them, which is to say, like, that's the part of the market that Squarespace really corners and does a good job of addressing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I think there there's some interesting opportunities for them in expanding their existing customer base. Um, and in particular, uh, you know, it's kind of worth looking at the geography here for, for where their customers are and where the money's coming from. Because for the most part, uh, it's coming from the U.S. This is a kind of a U.S.-driven company and a U.S.-driven story. Uh, looking at 2020, 430 million coming in from the United States, a little bit less than 200 million coming internationally. Um, the international segment, this is going to sound similar to what we talked about with presence versus commerce, growing faster, but smaller, um, about 35% year over year versus 25% for the US. So I think there, there are some interesting expansion opportunities for them. Uh, the US is going to be what drives this business for a long time, though. Makes sense. Um, I, I think at this point, Anand, looking at risks and, and kind of turning over to, all right, what can go wrong? Um, we have <laughs> done a decent job prefacing. There's there's a pretty substantial amount of competitive risk here with this business. Yeah, I think that's the biggest <laughs> risk here, right? Because, uh, we, you know, just to kind of give, you know, re recap a bit, you know, on the low end, there are tons of ways to host a basic website, many of them built on WordPress, which is owned by Automatic. Uh, on the higher end, as you get into the e-commerce monetization, you have Shopify and BigCommerce, as we talked about. And in the middle are the services like Squarespace, Wix, and Weebly, uh, which is owned by Square. Uh, this is to make the, uh, this is the, they're kind of the make it super easy, but still nice space. Uh, and then um, in terms of other kind of risks, you know, some anything that negatively hurts its brand or product, of course, would be bad. Uh, security of the platform, if that were compromised, I feel like that's that's a risk to just about anyone in in today's economy. Is is that kind of 
e-com or the uh, the risk of an online compromise. Uh, and then something you may not think about, which is something like like Google uh, dinging it for SEO purposes, but not dinging other platforms for whatever reason. That Google algorithm and, and ranking highly. You know, if, if I'm a if I'm a small business and I find out that for you know, see some headline that that Squarespace's sites are getting dinged, well, I'm I'm taking that and I'm moving over, even if it costs me some time and money, to to anything else. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big reputational risk, um, particularly when you are supposed to be the one that's making things easy for people, right? <laughs> like like if if you're simplifying something that's technical and you know you wind up not being able to deliver on that, uh, you're going to see an exodus of customers. It's just going to happen. Right now, on the the other side, most of the customers at the low end are probably not sophisticated enough where they're really tracking SEO performance. Uh, but you know, you've got that. And then the third thing is just. Uh, it, it qualifies as an emerging growth company under the Jobs Act, so that means less disclosure requirements. Uh, that's fairly common, uh, but you only get two years of audited financials. Uh, so when I told you that two years ago it grew at 24%, well, that was off of an unaudited figure. Uh, and then it doesn't have the Sarbanes-Oxley requirement of an audit of internal controls around financial reporting. So basically, long way of saying our antenna should be up a little more than normal. Uh, just because you don't have as robust a uh, an auditing procedure here. Yeah, and, and I think with that, like you want as much information as possible, and we're we're always gonna you know gripe about not getting certain details, just because we want as full a picture as we think we can possibly get. I'd love financials going as far back as they're willing to give us, right? <laughs> to, to be able to see like, okay, how has the growth story changed over time? How have their margins played as they've reached bigger scale? What kind of upside is there? Um, we're always going to quibble over these things just because it's what we do. We're nitpicky with this type of stuff. Um, one one thing that I, I'm trying to wrap my head around in in the vein of numbers on it is looking at what we get in terms of a retention figure for this business. Because um, you'd expect, you know, it's subscription-oriented. Um, the value is really going to be in retaining customers over the lifetime. And anytime that's the case, I want some proxy for what's going on with customer spend over time. What's going on with churn? How are they looking at that? And we saw, you know, ARPU expansion is is pretty limited. And so, what are we seeing in terms of attrition? And I didn't really get a great answer for that. Looking through their prospectus, they have this cash retention rate number, and it's it's easy to assume that something like this is a comps number the way that. A restaurant would provide on a quarterly basis, but I don't think that's the case. I'm, I'm going to read from the prospectus and just define this. It's a percentage of bookings received in the current period from website and domain subscriptions in existence during the same period the year prior. And what I hear there is basically, here's how much our existing customers helped us generate this quarter or this year. It's not how much we're getting from existing customers in a way that you can really show growth within that cohort. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And I think they spread it over gross merchandise volume, which you would expect the older customers to kind of grow more, but they're still paying that monthly fee. Uh, the 80%, you know, you, you hear about, you're like, whoa, with all these small customers, you'd expect a lot of churn. And they do say in the prospectus, yeah, a lot of our growth is, is on the acquisition front. Uh, so... Yeah, this is this is kind of a nothing burger for me where it's like, oh, 80% sounds good, but we know that's not likely the the true case of what we would think of 80%, 80 some percent to be. Right. Yeah, for for recent years, uh 2018, 2019, 2020, 83, 83, almost 86% uh most recently. So like 
I, I think it's, it's hard to know how to score that number because if I'm thinking about it correctly, that's something that can actually go up if customer acquisition goes down, which you wouldn't want. Right. Mm, right. And, right. and so it doesn't actually give you a good look at in a vacuum, how existing customers are trending over time. It only gives you a look at how existing customers play into the overall business. And there are other inputs that can affect that. So I, I'd like a more complete look at that. Um, and, and frankly, like for the, for the space they're in and the business they run, I would expect that to be a little bit more front and center just because so many SaaS and subscription-oriented businesses trumpet that number if it's a strong one. Yeah, and the reason that's important is just those marketing expenses that we were talking about earlier about how much, you know, we have that big gross margin and they're, they're leaking out money everywhere else. And, you know, they say, hey, over time, we expect marketing dollars to go up, but, but smaller as a percentage of sales. And you need churn to be as low as possible for that to come to fruition and, and or acquisition costs, you know, the cost to acquire those customers to either go down or stay steady. Uh, but it's a competitive space. So that it's worrisome if you can't retain folks. It is. And I, you know, I, I think like if they were showing pretty solid ARPU growth, I could ignore some of that stuff. Um, but it's, it's in the low single digits and for as, as much of a, you know, green field as we're looking at here with online presences and e-commerce, that, that market's going to mature over time. And being able to grow through customer acquisition, um, there are only going to be so many valuable customers out there to acquire. A at a certain point, you're just going to have the stable of people that you're working with. And if you can't meaningfully grow the top line with a second lever, it, it's not as attractive a business. And you, you start getting into like consolidation plays and, you know, are we going to combine with Wix? Okay, great. But <laughs> <laughs> what do I own now? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but what's nice is, you know, sometimes we do this perspective shows and we have to wait until, you know, we, we see what the public reception for the company is. In this case, company's already public. So, so we can talk a little bit about uh, the way the market reacted. And also we have a firm sense of the valuation, which is always helpful. Right on. Yeah, they came public on May 19th. So it was just a few days ago, uh, roughly a $7 billion company at 11 times sales. It went through a direct listing. So similar to Coinbase or Spotify, Slack, Palantir, Roblox, they were all direct listings. Uh, pretty ho-hum as far as IPOs go. Uh, the reference price, i.e. the kind of the, the private valuation number was like $50. The first day it traded down to $43 a share. Right now, the last time I checked, it's back up to like $54. But that's all within a fairly tight range, again, as far as IPOs go in this in this period of time. Um, just a side note, I do wonder how many people uh, confuse it with Square. Uh, the ticker is SQSP, not SQ. Uh, and Square, we were talking about, it owns Weebly. Um, you know, they're both in that kind of small to medium-sized business thing. Uh, I, I was talking to my wife right before this show. And yeah, she was confusing them. I remember years ago, I would confuse them. Uh, yeah, anyway. that could be could be a potential acquisition down the road. Just simplify things on it, you know? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and, and what I think is uh, a little interesting about, you know, where they sit now as a $7 billion business is um, they made their confidential filing and then they raised in the interim between listing and making that filing. And they, I think they raised about $300 million uh, at what was an implied valuation of about $10 billion. And uh, so, so we see them now trading a little bit below where, uh, where some of that capital came in. Um, and one thing I realized we didn't mention when we were talking through the financials is looking over their balance sheet, um, this is a business that 
has some cash on the books. And I think a big chunk of it is the fact that they did that recent raise, if I have the timing of this right. Um, so they have $200 million in cash on the books as of the end of March. That deal, that funding round was announced in mid-March. So I'm pretty sure that that's included. Don't quote me on that. But against that, they have $500 million in long-term debt. And so, uh, they, you know, they, they are a levered business. Um, and, and I think it's something that's worth noting because as long as things are going smoothly, it's not an issue. But if they hit any hiccups along the road, um, the growth story changes or they have a much harder time bringing in customers, that is something that's going to rear its head. Absolutely. Um, so, Anand, one of the things that I always enjoy doing with the show is, is bringing investors on who have their own approach to looking at businesses. And, I, you know, I think... Brian is such a staple of the show. We, we basically walked through his S1 approach, you know, in, in preparing our notes. He just kind of shamelessly cribbed it from him. Um, but what I'm excited about is you have your own way of looking at businesses. And I think it's a really helpful shorthand for people um, to just kind of understand philosophically what you're buying, why you're buying it, or, or why you're even interested in a business. And so I wanted to wrap our discussion of Squarespace here just talking through your stoplight framework. So kind of walking our walking our listeners through it and then putting uh, Squarespace through that framework. Great. Yeah, so there's it's basically five questions just because I know I won't go through an entire checklist, you know, like Brian can for every stock. I, you know, I, I the, the uh, yeah, the five <laughs> questions, I can, I can usually do that. Um, and it's kind of red to green, right? Red is bad, green is good, yellow's, kind of in the middle and then you got light green you know orange those kind of things uh so the the first question is the upside right what what, what is my potential upside you know could it 10x in 10 years um so to give you an idea the, the market as a whole uh gets you uh, if you get 10 percent for 10 years that's 2.6xing in 10 years so you'd be in the orange area for that which which is fine it's just that's what it is uh, I put Wix, at, or sorry, Wix, <laughs> Squarespace <laughs> at, in the yellow range. And I'm being nice a little. I think I'd, I'd personally put it in the orange range, but I was like, ah, no, there, there's potential upside. Uh, wh- what about you, Dylan? Yeah, I think for where they are, I would kind of like to see a little bit higher growth um, with, with the top line. I, I can't help when I look at a business like this to also stack it against companies like Wix and like Shopify. Um, and Squarespace is, it's a higher margin business than either of those companies. Um, and then either of those companies were at a similar revenue base. So Squarespace, 84% gross margins versus 65 and 53% uh, for Wix and shop. But Shopify was a much faster growing business at the same stage of revenue than Squarespace currently is. They, when they were doing 600 million in revenue, they were posting 70% year over year growth. And so I think that's where the comps between some of these businesses start to fall apart. Yeah, and and Wix, uh, you know, I think you noted uh, earlier, you know, before before we taped about it being a ten xer from twenty fifteen, but that was from a market cap well below one billion, and Squarespace is at seven billion now. So, you know, past performance doesn't mean future performance, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I I think we're both looking at this and scoring it in a way where it's like there there is the possibility of a of a ten x in five to ten years. But I wouldn't necessarily put a lot of money on it. Is that is that a right way to characterize that? Yeah, I'm highly skeptical <laughs> of Terex, right? Right. The yellow zone usually for me is like three to five x is a possibility. Yes, which I, by know. the way, great return. Which would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but like, if you're truly looking for maximum upside, I think they have a harder path there than some other businesses currently out there on the yeah. market. I'd be shocked if we were looking at a 10x in in 10 years from 
from Squarespace. But yeah, I'm shocked all the time. <laughs> um, so the other side of the ceiling, right, is the downside, the floor. You know, how high is that floor? Uh, so for 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 them, you know, they're they're losing money after we adjust for the preferred shares conversion stuff, and has some debt on its balance sheet. Uh, not positive on the cash flows because I don't think I saw the pro forma of the cash flows, so I don't know fully how those um, the preferred factors in. But long way of saying, yeah, you have debt, you have losses. I'm putting it in the orange orange category, which is you know, yeah, there's 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 existential risk here, potential. Yeah, one way I would take this question is the classic David Gardner snap test. And, you know, if, if this company disappears over time, you know, or overnight, um, what happens? You know, how, how do people feel about that? And Wix feels we, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Wix, Wix is really excited of Squarespace. Like, ah, oh, we're shutting up our doors. Uh, <laughs> but, in, I, you know, I think with Squarespace, 3.6 million customers is nothing to sneeze at. They have they have a very uh, large customer base, and I and I think they're probably a pretty loyal customer base. So, I think this business sticks around. Um, I I can't picture it disappearing, but I, I would like to see a little bit cleaner financials, especially with that net debt position they have. And then the uh, the next one is kind of the wow factor of what's the most important thing. If you had uh, you know someone says, hey, why are you buying Squarespace? What's the one thing you tell them? Uh, <laughs> I had a simple leading way people, you know, people in businesses make a web presence. So kind of that simplicity and that scale that Dylan was talking about. Um, that's kind of a yellow reason. That's not, you know, so the, you know, a green reason would be like intuitive surgical first mover in robotic surgery or, uh, Shopify, Amazon stopped competing with them. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. green. Yeah, and that's good context because you know I think with, with this, this is much more of a subjective category, right? For looking at businesses, and and something has to leap off the page to you. I know personally for me, it's it's a lot easier to put money behind an idea where the financials look great, the management team looks great, and there is there is something maybe it's born out of the financials, but then you start looking culturally and you see more and more of it that just gets you excited about the business. I think I think this is a wonderful tool for a lot of people. I haven't had that aha moment with them as a business. I do think the margins that they're able to post are interesting given where the rest of their competitors are. And that's probably the closest thing I have, in addition to the, the more user-facing simplicity. Um, looking at their books, that's, that's a little bit of a wow for me. But it's a muted wow in the in the grand scheme <laughs> of wows. <laughs> Fair enough. So those first three, those are like those are the stock specific criteria: the upside, downside, and wow. Uh, the next two are kind of to the stock picker. You know, I call it on and specific criteria. You probably want to use your own name. Uh, so the next one is how excited am I to own it for ten years? And I just wrote down meh. That that's all I had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think with a business like this, you have the tailwinds behind you. And and my I think my specific criteria with a lot of stuff is like, is there an undeniable macro trend that's gonna push this thing forward? You know, um and, and in their case, it's there. You know, I mean like uh there's been a lot of customer acquisition that's already happened in this space. Um my concern though is I think there are people that are better monetizing those audiences and maybe even providing better tools for those audiences. It, it almost just seems like there are easier ideas to invest in, in the market that they're in. Yeah. I mean, competing with 
you know, I, I didn't even realize Square owned Weebly until we were doing the research. You know, Square, that's that's a big, you know, and they have a big ecosystem to feed you into. And then you've got the Shopify's and, and Wix. You know, Wix is a little bigger than Squarespace in, in terms of uh, revenues. So you've got some major competitors. Um, so the last one is confidence level in my assessment. And this is another orange for me because I'm early in my understanding of, of both the company and then, you know, I, I have some work to do to just, you know, I want to kind of go over Zix and, and Shopify and anything I can see from other public companies to kind of look at that and kind of get under that gross margin, things like that. Um, and then being confused by some of the preferred stock stuff. Uh, definitely that'll that'll solidify a little more with the first earnings release. Uh, so I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious with that, Anand. Um, my general arc as an investor is I go from, okay, I think I understand this thing. And then I do a lot more research. I'm like, I, I have more questions than answers. Like the, the more <laughs> I learn, the less I, I feel like I actually know about something. So for, for your confidence level in an assessment, is there something recently that you've looked at and said like, this is green, I get it, I know the story, and I have a really good handle on what this is? Yeah, so something like, um, to give you an idea, like Etsy was light green across the board for me. So... In, in all things. And some of it's like, hey, I've, I've followed it longer. You know, I'm not just looking at it this week because it just had an S1, right? And you've seen it perform and you've, you've dealt with it. I've been a customer of it. You know, I, I know how other people use it. I, you know, I can see their track record of over 100% growth in this last year, things like that. Um, and you can, and, and also just, you know, the valuation, things like that, where you're like, oh, I can easily see how this could grow and, and how it can, can really make something uh, bigger than it is today. It's interesting that you mentioned Etsy there because mm -hmm. that's, that is in a way a category of competitor that we didn't even really get into. Um, yeah, for for these for these businesses, and and I think there's enough there that separates them because what what you're talking about when you're looking at the Wix's, Squarespace's, Shopify's of the world is is ownership over the customer experience. Whereas with Etsy, it's it's fragmented. You're playing in a marketplace, but also your your upfront standup costs are way lower. Right, you're going to want both, right? Uh, and you're probably going to want an Amazon thing and whatever you know, all of that. Uh, but but then you think about, well, if you grow and it's on the Etsy platform, does that help you that much with your kind of your organic traffic and to Squarespace? And are you really going to buy a lot more? Or you just keep paying that subscription fee to keep your yeah. web presence. Yeah, I'm, I'm a believer that generally we're going to see more businesses, entrepreneurs take ownership of their digital presence. Um, and there are, I mean dozens, maybe hundreds of businesses that investors could hop into with that thesis and probably make some pretty good money. Um, but, but I think that the era of like the platform and marketplace, they're, they're doing well and they're going to continue to thrive. But I think, I think a lot of businesses are, are feeling pinched by the you know, meal delivery companies, by uh, the, these businesses that, you know, they, they kind of subject these business owners and proprietors to the algorithm. And, and losing that control and, and having someone in between you and the customer um, just means that you're taking less of every single thing you're selling home. And, and I, th I think we're going to see more and more money go in this direction. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of businesses in Squarespace's case that are putting money there and <laughs> already have some pretty delighted customers. Right on. Yeah, always a tension, right, with the, between the platforms and the uh, and the folks and, and even like social media platforms, all of that. And as a business, you want to be everywhere, right? Yeah. 
Omni Channel. It's the name of the yes. game. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, Anand, thank you so much for coming on and talking Squarespace and, and walking our listeners through the Stoplight Framework. Thanks, Dylan. Had a great time. Awesome. Listeners, that is going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you're looking for more stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. And the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Oh,